So the way we normally do this, <laughs> because we are recording uh, our podcast. Is anybody familiar with the Unknown Studio at all? Yay! Half of the room. Okay. That's great. Uh, What's that? I did. Clinton got a coffee mug. There you go. Limited edition. There are no more. There are no more of them. And some of them were signed, so they are even more limited edition. So I'm not going to get a coffee mug? I'm we, sorry. We ran out <laughs> long before we knew we were going to interview you, right, but I do have a special gift for you, mugs. and that's coming later. All right, because I don't drink coffee anyway, so okay. it works out. Uh, so we have a, uh, a podcast. It runs uh, twice a month. It's called The Unknown Studio, and we basically talk to interesting Edmontonians about the interesting stuff they're doing, and probably Star Trek comes up, because Adam really loves Star Trek. Um, that may come up, I'm just forewarning you. Uh, we were asked by Diane, actually, to uh, interview Joe for his interview panel this evening, because she thought it would be neat. And we were like, that is incredibly neat. So I'm going that. to endeavor to prove her wrong, though. I'm going to try well, and make it not neat. Well, and, and I, I want to point out, I am neither an Edmontonian nor interesting. So, Well, I would uh, disagree at least at one of those points. <laughs> you mean he's from Edmonton? That yep. is correct. <laughs> uh, so, yes. Uh, so we are going to do the format of our show when we record it, which is a little jumbled because a lot of uh, what ends up going into the final product is in the post-production. So if at the end we talk about our sponsors and at the front we do our introduction, just bear with us. We will talk to Joe. So, and uh, so usually it, it starts with me asking Scott a question. Hey, Scott. Yes, Adam. Uh, which house would you belong to if you lived in the land of the Seven Kingdoms? Doctor House. That is acceptable. You'd live in Doctor House. <laughs> that is correct. Okay. That's why he has a problem with his leg. <laughs> <laughs> Coming to you almost live from the Pure Speculation Festival. This is the Unknown Studio. I'm Scott. I'm Adam. We are your delightful hosts. Delicious, even. Quite. Uh, we are we are kind of almost live and kind of actually live we, for one of our few times we've done. This. We're sitting in front of a room of about three thousand people right now at Grant McEwen. Yep. Uh, and they're waiting for us to talk to the gentleman seated to my right and to my left, right in between us. Indeed. I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe Wose, did I get that right? You got that right. It is Joe. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and Wose, yes. Joe Wose is the founder, among other many things that he's done, of the Tunesium in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In the U.S. of A. Yes, that yes. is nowhere in Alberta. And Joe, you've been a, a cartoonist and, and, and a performer and, and an artist. Uh, tell us a little bit about... First of all, how you got your start, and in a few hours or minutes, we'll get to the Tunesium itself. Sure, absolutely. Um, when I was four years old, my parents caught me drawing on the walls with a crayon. Um, they taped paper up on the walls and said, go ahead. Um, and I've been drawing ever since. Um, the point at which I became a cartoonist, though, um, uh, came a little bit later uh, in kindergarten. 
Um, at that time, I, I grew up in, um, in Pittsburgh uh, during the 1970s. The 1970s uh, for kids were a very scary time in the United States. We lived in constant fear of two things, um, nuclear holocaust and the metric system. Um, thankfully, <laughs> neither came to pass in the United States anyway. Um, but my dad worked in, in a steel mill. And uh, I had actually wanted to be a steel worker like my father. Really? Um, and, and whenever uh, he would point to where he worked, um, we had something, uh, we called it economic development. Um, we now found out it's called pollution. And uh, it filled the sky, so we would just see like this massive gray cloud. And my dad worked in what was called the powerhouse. And I thought, wow, how cool, my dad makes power. Everybody wants power, my dad makes it. So in, in kindergarten, Mr. Weaver, my art teacher, I still remember this, um, told us we had to draw where we wanted to work we grew up for parent-teacher day. Uh, kindergarten, I have to know where I'm going to work when I grow up. Well, they really do want to fast track you. Well, they do. And it's, uh, yeah. So it was, um, so I took a piece of paper and uh, a black crayon and I just filled it. Uh, I scribbled all over the thing till it was covered um, with what I perceived to be what a mill looked like. And the teacher, Mr. Weaver, just freaked out on me. He's like, what are you doing? You don't know what you're doing. You can't follow instruction. You don't know how to draw. This is ridiculous. Go sit in a corner. I was heartbroken. And then when my parents came in, um, he showed my dad the drawing. He said, this is what your son did. He was supposed to draw where he wanted to work when he grew up. My dad looked at it and said, that is the best drawing I've ever seen of the mill. Um, that is perfect. How can you live in Pittsburgh and not know that is a mill? Um, and at that moment, I realized my dad saw what the teacher couldn't. And in that, that exact moment, um, I realized I wanted to be a cartoonist because no one can tell you you're wrong when you're a cartoonist. Um, if your drawing looks funny, it's supposed to. Um, I wanted to create. I didn't want to copy. So from that point on, I, I knew that's it. I'm going to be a cartoonist, not a still worker. I'm going to draw whatever I want, and no one is ever going to tell me I'm wrong. And you knew you knew it had to be cartoons. You, you didn't well, think art. That was a, no. It was out of spite. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Mr. Weaver him was sort of an amateur cartoonist. Um, so it was purely out of spite of, of just being better than him. Um, I, I've learned a long time ago, and I think I learned this from from Charles M. Schultz, um, that sometimes we exceed in life not in spite of people, but to spite people. <laughs> uh, and so I, I actually ended up going back to that school 20 years later to perform, did my show on stage, and um, you know, Mr. Weaver, had, had, I told him the whole story, and as I walked off the stage, he leaned to the principal and said, I taught him everything he knows. So uh, he was kind of right. But uh, yeah, cartoons, because you know, a tree, you look at a tree, if you draw a tree and it doesn't look like a tree, you kind of messed it up. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at it. How did you get it wrong? With a cartoon, I mean, come on. A sponge could wear pants and talk. I mean, there's no way to get it wrong. Uh, and I would love that about cartoons. And SpongeBob doesn't actually look like a, a sponge like the sea creature. He looks like a sponge that you wash your dishes with. Yeah, and Mickey Mouse, I mean, I don't know what he's supposed to be. Uh, a mouse, apparently. Yeah, but, but you but would never know. No. If you put that in, in a room, no, no one's going to go, eek, a mouse. I mean, it, <laughs> it's, it's some weird-looking geometric rat. I don't know what it is. Yeah. So then, so throughout your childhood, did your focus shift immediately? You, this sounds like a turning point for you in a lot of It, it was. At a very I'm, young age. Too. At a very young age, um, there was this sort of immediate shift of saying, well, you know, the, the, I, I, it was really driven by me saying, you know, boy, that teacher was really rotten. Um, <laughs> it's like they, there can't be a wrong way to draw. There can't be. Yeah. And uh, immediately I, I just started drawing constantly, um, just trying to perfect my own personal craft. 
but at the same time, um, wanting to show others that there, this idea of wrong in art just didn't apply. And uh, I wanted to dismiss that. So that really was a turning point. That's incredible. Uh, and then I had you know, several others that encouraged it. Um, one of the main ones is I, I'm dyslexic. Um, so I had a lot of trouble learning how to read and write. And uh, drawing was what got me through it because uh, I would take my letters, which were bouncing around on the page as I looked at them, and I would take the letters and start to draw words using the letters as building blocks for the imagery. Um, and that really taught me how to read, how to write, how to draw, and all of that. So cool. uh, I had good teachers, except yeah. for Mr. Weaver. So you stink if you're still out there. Mr. Weaver, <laughs> the jerk who taught Joe everything he knows, <clears throat> was the first step. And w w throughout you know, school, did you find that most people were really encouraging of it once they, they realized you had an aptitude for it? Was I, I did. And, but the funny thing is, in looking back, I realized I actually had very little aptitude for it. Um, I look at my drawings now and I go, boy, why did they encourage that? That's not a very good drawing. But, uh, but I did. I, I think um, they, they, they looked at me and they said, well, he, he, he stinks at sports. Um, he's not very good at math. Uh, maybe this drawing thing will work out for him because I don't know what else there is. Um, so I did. I had three teachers. My parents always encouraged me. And, um, you know, th that's the great thing about art. You really only need a handful of things, something to draw on, something to draw with, an imagination, and someone to say, yeah, go do that. Uh, so I had that. I was lucky. That's cool. So fast forward to present day. Because we have minutes, not that's hours. That's a long fast forward. Well, I'm going to assume Good. it's not. I'm going to assume okay. it's... Yeah, this, maybe 20 years from kindergarten. Well, they can't see me. That's so. right. Yeah. Joe's youthful. Youthful. <laughs> um, you're, you, not only have you opened this museum in Pittsburgh, but you've also been doing a show yes. on the road called Once Upon a Tune. Yes. Now, now how, do you, how does cartoons translate into it's a, a stage, stage show? performance? Yeah. Um, it's actually a, a, a very old vaudeville tradition. Um, Windsor McKay. Uh, who has uh, created Gertie the Dinosaur, the first animated cartoon, uh, who created, of course, Nemo, one of the early comic strips, um, started out doing stage performances where he would illustrate stories as he told them. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a tradition, of course, that, that faded with the death of vaudeville. It didn't work well on radio. Um, <laughs> Robert Ripley tried it. He would still draw on the radio. Not, not a very visual medium, the radio. No, it's not. Um, not at all. Uh, which is why I'm not drawing tonight. Uh, <laughs> but so I, I, when I was 14, uh, I had all this drawing that I've done and, and really didn't know what to do with it. And um, uh, I, I sort of came upon this idea of just like, well, I should draw stories as I tell them. And I started performing for the younger kids in the elementary schools when I was 14. Gave me something to do. And then um, it just took off. So by the time I was in my 20s, I was doing, you know, 100, 200 performances a year. Wow. Uh, and by the time I reached 25, uh, I was touring nationwide. So how, how beefy is your, your drawing forearm? If you're, if you're performing and drawing something as you perform, are you, you know? Not, I have very strong thumb and finger. <laughs> okay. um, but that's, I can pinch really hard. Um, but that's about it. Um, no, uh, it, it's a lot of drawing. Uh, you know, I've done as many as 2,000 drawings in a single day. What? Um, just what? nonstop. That's, um, that's remarkable. I, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's up there. I mean, certainly uh, iWorks has me beat, but uh, 
you know, it, it, it's a lot of drawings. That just reminds me of that, that episode of The Simpsons where they were talking about, have you ever done a live itchy and scratchy? No, it's a tremendous strain on the writer, on the cartoonist's <laughs> yeah. arms. But you're, you're, you're I mean, that's kind of the analog, it, right? That is I mean, kind of the analog. Is it is It's like watching a picture book come alive before your eyes. That's because incredible. I'm illustrating the story as I'm telling it. So a single story might be anywhere from five to 20 illustrations. Um, so it's, it's constantly moving forward. And uh, last night at the, um, at the, the Taste of Pure Spec event, uh, you actually did a story. Yes. And it was fantastic. Thank and you. It was Thank only it was six drawings, maybe? It ended up, yeah, it was about six drawings. But it was still fantastic. Well, and the, and the neat thing about what I do is if you talk to kids in particular after my show, and say, how many drawings did Joe do? And if it's six drawings, they'll say 20. Um, this is an amazing thing. I always say that um, the imagination is so powerful that um, in comic strips, the story doesn't take place in those four little panels. Four panels isn't enough to tell a story. The real story takes place in the white space in between where the drawing ends and your imagination takes over. I think the toughest thing any artist does is not in deciding what to draw, but in deciding what not to draw, what to leave to the imagination. And I think that's part of what I do, is have to decide what drawing is gonna help a gag along, what story what propels the story forward. Um, because it can't just be a drawing that's just up there for the heck of it. It, ne it needs to be connected. Do you think that for a lot of uh, cartoonists or artists, particularly cartoonists, there's a conscious decision of what to leave out and leave to the imagination? Or do you think that that's something that just kind of flows as it's being I, constructed? I think it's in, it becomes intuitive. Um, I, I think the biggest weakness of, um, that an artist has early on is we are not all innate storytellers. Um, great cartoonists are always great storytellers, always. Charles M. Schultz, great storyteller. Walt Disney, great storyteller. Um, but if you look at the early comics of any great comic book artist, and they wrote the comics themselves, it is about the entire page is filled up with lots and lots of text, and they draw every single piece of action. It takes a lot of practice to learn how to let that go and to trust your audience is going to understand what you're trying to say, what your message is, um, just through an economy drawing. Yeah. Do you think there's anyone out there that you can think of off the top of your head who's doing that really well in the comic book world? Um, in the comic book world, um, I, I, I think actually it's it's not in the superhero genre. I, I think probably the master of that right now is um, Owly, um, you know, which I think most people view as a children's book, but um, it has a great crossover audience. But I think the stuff he's doing is remarkable. Just no words, Strictly imagery and um, easy to follow and, and telling a very um, interesting and compelling story. Yeah. Last week, The Unknown Studio was invited to the Christmas Bureau of Edmonton's annual media launch. It's an event that Scott and I look forward to every year as a way to officially kick off the holiday season. It's also an opportunity for us to help an outstanding Edmonton organization get the word out about fellow citizens in need over the holidays. 2011 marks the Christmas Bureau's 71st year, and unfortunately, the need for your donations continues to increase. This year, the Christmas Bureau will help about 70,000 less fortunate Edmontonians to ensure that they have a meal to eat at Christmas time. 
That means that the Bureau needs to raise about $1.8 million between now and Christmas. Over its 71 years, the Christmas Bureau has touched thousands of Edmontonians, and at the media launch, which included various local media outlets decorating gingerbread houses, we also heard from Contessa Abbott, who at one time had to access the Christmas Bureau, and she shared her story with the people assembled at the launch. Hello, everybody. Um, my name is Contessa, and I hope you all enjoyed making your gingerbread houses. I was kind of jealous I wasn't on the team. Um, next year, that's exactly what I'm doing. Um, I'm the owner of Full House Events and Marketing and an active member of Butterfly Transitions and Healing Society. I'm here today because I represent a large portion of clientele that the Christmas Bureau serves. Um, and I represent a, a number of different statistics, including single mothers and Aboriginal people um, that are represented in that. I'm also here because I've had many successes in my life, especially in the, the last few years, um, that have allowed me to give back to my community and to give back to the Christmas Bureau. So thank you for, actually I want to thank you the Christmas Bureau for asking me to do this and, and to speak to all of you. The slogan for the Christmas Bureau is for some the seasons must have gift and I really haven't heard any other slogan in anything I've ever done that just captures the essence of, of what somebody does and what the Christmas Bureau is. I come from a history where my family utilized the Christmas Bureau and I've had to use the Christmas Bureau. Um, there is this stigma that, that sometimes I feel speaking about this, but I went through school as a single mother before. I finished university and I don't think in some moments I would have been able to do that without the support of some of the other agencies within the city, including the Christmas Bureau and of course the ladies there. Um, there's times that I struggled to provide necessities for my children and I had to do what I needed to. Before I go on, I want to acknowledge that I was a young mother um, and I don't think I'd ever be who I am or what I have today if I didn't have my children. And I owe almost all my successes to them. So, a little bit about my story. A full-time student and an employee as a single mother probably isn't always the easiest thing to do. Most students on a student income find it difficult enough. Raising four children with a student's income can be quite difficult. Um, and as an employee, I'm probably not the favorite candidate because I use all 10 of my sick days in, in about six months. Um, <laughs> which is why I decided I was gonna be a business owner um, and started my own events planning business. Having said that, you can imagine that 
Christmas Bureau, the Christmas Bureau, and their generosity helped my children and I get to this point today. Um, if it wasn't for the Christmas Bureau, at times I probably wouldn't be able to see smiles on my children's faces. Um, and even though you're going to an agency and you're asking for, for help, I think the smiles on my children's faces and the smells of Christmas dinner were probably worth it all. And it's because of all the generous people in the room here today and in the city and what these beautiful ladies and the board does for everyone every year. And anything to support the Christmas Bureau, to help them touch other families that were in similar situations or even completely different situations, I'm happy to do. My success is the success of the Christmas Bureau and the relief I obtained during those times that I struggled is also part of the Christmas Bureau's. Over the years, their support helped me provide for the children, give them some memories, and I've gone on to finish my degree. I've gone on to start running a business. One which just recently merged to create On Beat, which hosted the first Completing the Circle benefit this year with Sawyer Brown as a headliner to bring awareness for other agencies like the Christmas Bureau and Butterfly Transitions that help families. So, again, just thank you. And please, support the Christmas Bureau as much as possible, because it works. A donation of $85 to the Christmas Bureau will feed a family of four. A donation of $30 will help provide a Christmas meal to a senior or an individual. If you'd like to donate to the Christmas Bureau of Edmonton, check out musthavegifts.ca. You can also donate via mobile if you text CHRISTMAS to 45678, that'll donate $10. Or you can text HAMPER to that same short code to donate $5. And if you haven't the budget to give cash, consider giving the Christmas Bureau some of your time. Call their volunteer coordinator at 780-414-7682. Dad! Dad! Look! Can I have that for Christmas? That one right there! I'll be super good. I promise I'll do all my homework and study hard. And I won't ask for anything else this year. I'm sorry, honey. But Dad! All my friends are getting it for Christmas. Please, Dad! Please! I'm sorry, but we can't afford a turkey this year. For some families, a warm meal is out of reach during the holidays. Please, donate at christmasbureau.ca to ensure no one spends Christmas hungry. We should take a moment yes. to thank uh, our sponsor... A singular sponsor of this show. Who uh, is very near and dear to our hearts and uh, has a program, in fact, that is very near and dear to this subject. Absolutely. Uh, we are, of course, referring to Edmonton's Hogwarts of Digital Media. Guru Digital Arts College. That is correct. With and its Dumbledore-esque headmaster, Owen Brierley. He's bearded and 
has a phoenix that rides around on his shoulder and is eccentric. Yes, but they have a they have a uh, sequential art program, so they do diplomas with people. And actually, they've got an artist there named Nat Jones who drew uh, sixty eight, has worked with Rob Zombie on a number of projects, and uh, and has even drawn. Spawn cartoons. Yes. So there you go. They've got a great program, and we're glad that they sponsor this show so that we can, you know. Continue to do the show. Exactly. That's right. So uh, if you are interested in changing your career and are looking at a uh, digital option, you could go to no finer place than Guru Digital Arts College. That's gurudigitalarts.ca. And we're not just saying that because they paid us to. But maybe we are. And I highly recommend you give up that career in law and pursue digital arts and cartooning. It's much more rewarding. Uh, not lucrative, but rewarding. And that's what this is all about. Rewards. So you've, you've got this one-man, one-beefy-arm drawing show, an aptitude uh, for doing so since the age of five. And then here you are in Pittsburgh, and you, you decide, you're in are you inspired by what you see in San well, Francisco? So what or? happened is um, I, uh, ten, 11 years ago, was performing in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And uh, their education director comes up to me, and he was all 22 at the time, and he said, uh, I'm applying for a job at the Charles M. Schultz Museum. When I get the job, you're going to be the first person I hire. And I say, great kid, thanks. All right. Um, sure enough, two years later, I hear from him, can you send out a video? Jeannie Schultz wants to see what you do. And um, they asked me to come out for the opening week of the Charles M. Schultz Museum in California. Uh, so I, I fly out there. Uh, have an amazing experience at this museum. Uh, it, it's one of the largest museums in the world dedicated to a single artist. Uh, in Pittsburgh, we have the Andy Warhol Museum, which is the largest. Um, so uh, it was remarkable. And then I went to San Francisco to visit their cartoon art museum, and immediately it clicked. This is the next uh, museum movement. I had watched children's museums uh, crop up all over the country and pop art museums crop up, and I said, this is, this is what's next. So I, I came back to Pittsburgh after two weeks and um, approached the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh and said, I, I want to prototype this. I want a, uh, a hallway to just test this out, and, uh, and that's how it started. And they were pretty open to that? There, wasn't any, there weren't any qualms, really? There were after we put up a Zippy the Pinhead exhibit. Um, uh, at that point, we, like, we realized their audience was four and our audience was 34. Yeah. Um, and that was the point at which we sort of said, you know what? This is great. Um, this is not going to work. Um, this is not a good fit for us. And so we started looking for our own home, and uh, we moved to downtown Pittsburgh's cultural district. Um, you know, we sort of said it's putting pop culture in the cultural district. Mm -hmm. So if you can picture now this cartoon art museum in a district that has the symphony and the opera and, you know, a lot of 90-year-old people in limos pulling up and stepping out and now they see a giant Superman comic just <laughs> plastered, you know, right on that street. And it's, um, I think it shocked people. Uh, which was great. That's what we wanted. And do you I think th it's a tremendous fit, personally. Yeah. It, I mean, it ended up being a great fit. The, the, the blue hair crowd and the, the, the people who have those little binocular glasses, I feel like th that some comics, anyway, have got to be a part of their past as well. Oh, it is. And that's what I think surprised everyone is the longevity of their um, youthful memories. Really? Um, 
that we have had the um, what we call them the chin strokers. They're the people who come into galleries and stroke their chin and go, oh yes, well his earlier work was much more pristine, his latter work has a certain maturity. And they come into our museum and they see, you know, Bugs Bunny and suddenly they break down like, oh my God, Bugs Bunny, I love Bugs Bunny. So um, it does, it, it washes away. And then we introduce them and say, okay, so you loved Bugs Bunny, let me, let me tell you about Art Spiegelman. And uh, suddenly they, they begin to, to gain a real respect for the art. Um, and our gift shop helps a lot with that because the books in there, people really, they go, oh, this is cartoons too? This is remarkable. Um, so we've, we've, we've broke down a lot of walls. That's great. Yeah. The, uh, how long has the museum been open? We have now been in existence for uh, four years. Um, we've been in our downtown location for now two and a half years, and we just expanded. And are you getting, have you watched traffic grow steadily? Um, can you share any numbers with us? On yeah, I, I mean, it's when we, when we first opened, um, we would have been, we, we were thinking, you know what? If we can pull in 5,000 people a year to a little museum this small, that's, we're doing okay. We can survive because we have a lot of great supporters. Um, when we opened our superhero exhibit, uh, we did 10,000 people in two months. Oh, my God. Uh, which is huge for us. Um, part of that was we opened up our superhero exhibit the same month they were filming Batman in front of our building. Was that deliberate? Yes. We had heard a rumor um, that Batman was going to film in Pittsburgh, but there was no confirmation and no one give confirmation, and a lot of times those rumors don't come true. I was parked my car and walking past the parking garage, and I recognized one of the uh, people from the Pittsburgh Film Office, and they're standing there with Christopher Nolan taking a tour of our block. And I realized no one else knows this is Christopher Nolan. No one else knows this is the head of the film office. I'm the only one in Pittsburgh right now <laughs> who knows they're about to film Batman. And rather than go to the media or start tweeting about it, I went to our office and I said, we're doing a superhero exhibit. <laughs> and um, so it was very deliberate. That's um, great. And we timed it out perfect. We actually invited for the closing week of the exhibit, we invited Jerry Robinson, uh, came to our museum. Uh, Jerry doesn't travel as much as he used to. And he's doing his presentation. He finishes up. Christopher Nolan comes into our museum to see Jerry Robinson. Nice. Um, so he actually comes in. He, he spends a good bit of time with us. We talk him around, show him around the exhibit, and uh, so there's this great picture of me, uh, Christopher Nolan, and Jerry Robinson. That's so cool. So that's you know, Batman beginning to to now. No kidding. So are you are you sort of um, helping to build or strengthen this this comic community in or? or you know. Yeah, I mean, that's an important part of our mission is a museum has to go beyond four walls. Uh, you have to build that community. Um, you rely on them. That's important. Mm -hmm. Pittsburgh has a very active cartooning community. We um, started the Pennsylvania chapter of the National Cartoonist Society in Pittsburgh. Um, we saw a need that there was not enough recognition for independent comic artists, so we started PICS, which is the Pittsburgh Indie Comics Expo, which is now going... It's, just finished up its second year, so and going very strong. Cool. We um, we also produce what I think may be a first in North America. We did a complete comic book guide to the north side of Pittsburgh. It was so popular. We we did three runs. Um, we did over twenty thousand of these. 
And then um, we got approached by a foundation, the Fine Foundation, which is a fine foundation. Candles <laughs> um, and said, we love this. You should do another neighborhood. And we said, well, do you have money? And they said, yeah, we'll give you money to do another neighborhood. So now we're doing the Oakland neighborhood. And then we just had another foundation that contacted us three weeks ago and said, we heard you're doing Oakland. Why aren't you doing downtown? And he said, well, it involves money. They go, well, we'll fund you to do downtown. Nice. So we actually have uh, 20 different comic book artists, all each taking different venues. So writing about the Children's Museum, the Science Center, the streets, so that by the end of next year, Pittsburgh will be the first city probably in the world to have its entire community documented in comic book form. <laughs> that's a, that's, that's incredible. Cool. So, um, so that's something we've done, and that's because of connections to the community. So you're, you're using words and images to tell stories about these neighborhoods? We're using words and images to act as both a guidebook, a history, uh, and tell personal stories. So um, you learn about you know, the Carnegie Museum, but you also learn about Andrew Carnegie. Or you learn about Andy Warhol's birthplace and the Andy Warhol Museum, and you learn about Andy Warhol. Um, and it's an eclectic mix. I mean, there are uh, Jim Rugg, who does uh, the comic Aphrodisiac, which is actually pretty popular here in Edmonton, I hear. Um, uh, Mark Zingarelli, who was a, a collaborator at Harvey Picar. Um, just really great people. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the young up-and-coming artists, too. We had a question from the audience. Right on. Actually. Did you want to come up and ask it, actually? Okay. Into the microphone, sir. So this is, uh, this is Clinton. He's uh, sitting in the audience, and he has a question for Joe. Hi, Joe. I was just wondering, how often do you change the uh, displays in the museum? Um, that's a great question. We, when, we, when we started this, we said, well, let's change them every four to five months. They change every two months. Um, so it's constantly changing. Now that we've added a second gallery... Um, that gives us flexibility. <laughs> that second gallery was added with the purpose of having a more permanent exhibit and a rotating exhibit, but we're finding that we just want to do more. So we're still rotating all these exhibits through. So it's, it's constantly evolving. Which was going to be my next question. Do you have anything permanent on display? We do have. There are a few things that are permanent. Uh, we have one of the desks from Walt Disney's first studio, um, the Hyperion Studios, uh, not his personal studio. It was owned by an animator named Paul Satterfield, who, um, when it was donated to us, uh, the reason it came to us is he had wanted it to remain forever in use. And so we said, yeah, we'll let people sit at that desk. So they get to come to the Tunesium. They sit at the desk, um, you know, from the 1930s. Uh, Paul Satterfield was a director on the Rite of Spring sequence of Fantasia, and they get this real experience of, of what it was like. And, and I, I always tell them, if you really want to know what it was like to work for Walt Disney, I just sort of stand there and criticize their work. Um, <laughs> but so it's a real experience, and that's permanent. We also have, uh, as the centerpiece, uh, we have an original Gertie the Dinosaur uh, from 1914 by Windsor McKay, uh, one of only about 150 or so that survive. Um, so that always stays up. And then we have a few pieces from Mad Magazine, a few comics uh, that stay up, but most of it rotates. So it sounds like you there's a demand, uh, not a demand, but an opportunity to build more space. It, yes. Or a need, a need there's to build a, There's more. a constant need to evolve. We went from, we were only about, when we opened in the Children's Museum, we were 300 square feet. When wow. we moved downtown, we were 1,500 square feet. Uh, our new expansion, we just opened a new gallery, uh, which I got to tell you about because it was awesome when we opened it, um, has now taken us to about 4,000 square feet. So we continue to grow. 
um, you know, our plans are to next annex the symphony. Would be great. <laughs> and make so them play cartoon theme songs all day. Yeah, they, they'll do it. That'd be wicked. So tell us about this, this uh, gallery launch then. So when we decided we are going to open the gallery, we are like, well, who do we name this after? Um, there were some organizations that bought naming rights to sections of the gallery. Um, Starkist, who we love Starkist because they have Charlie the Tuna. Um, and they said, we want, we're going to name a section the Charlie the Tuna Hall of Legends. So not even the Starkist <laughs> Hall of Legends. They said, Charlie the Tuna is our icon. We, we want him to live in Pittsburgh. Nice. Um, because that's where they're based. Um, but the overall gallery, we're like, well, who do we name this after? And we looked at this list of the great cartoonists who had come from Pittsburgh. And for me, one name had always stood out, uh, a man who never got enough recognition, and that was Lou Scheimer. Uh, Lou Scheimer was the founder of Filmation Studios, um, had been born in Pittsburgh. And so this idea is in my head. We're going to name this after Lou Scheimer. Um, and about a week later, this family comes in. It's a, a young family, a little girl, uh, a little girl. She was 14. And... Uh, the um, aunt says, tell him who your grandfather is. And he, oh, he won't know who grandpa is. He says, tell, well, tell him, tell him. My grandpa's Lou Scheimer. Do you know him? I said, are you kidding? We're trying to get in touch with him. Is he, is he around? You know, where is he? Is he in L.A.? And she says, oh, no, he lives part-time in Pittsburgh. Oh, my he's, God. He's engaged. Um, and so he's here all the time. Do you want to meet him? I'm like, meet him? I want to name a gallery after him. <laughs> uh, so get to meet with Lou. We talk about it, and he's very excited. So our opening day, just last week, um, we had him cut the ribbon. But we didn't have him just cut the ribbon. We found the cast, the actual molding, from the He-Man sword used in the 1986 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And wait we, a minute, wait a minute. Where, where did you find this thing? One of our board members, uh, Jim Martin, uh, is a director on Sesame Street. He was also Gary Gnu on The Great Space Coaster. And... Um, he said, we got to find a sword. we got to find a sword. So he, he goes to this place uh, out in New York um, that he works with sometimes and says, hey, I'm looking for a sword that looks kind of like He-Man's sword. And they go, oh, yeah, we've got He-Man's sword. <laughs> they go in a back room, and they pull out He-Man's sword. That's amazing. So Lou Scheimer, actually, we cast it. Lou Scheimer actually cut the ribbon with He-Man's sword. Oh, my gosh. So it was awesome. And now we're getting orders for these swords. We're only doing 20 of them. And we're getting tons of orders from them, uh, from people in Italy and France who, who want one of these swords signed by He-Man. And they'll pay the price. Yeah, we're doing it. So, so it's helping fund the gallery. That's great. And you've managed to, it sounds like, attract international attention. Are you guys, uh, forgive my ignorance, are you yep. using tools like Twitter and Facebook to keep in touch with people? Or? Yeah, we, we're, we're amazing. Uh, and here's <laughs> why. We are the smallest museum in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which has some tremendous museums. We were the first museum to have an iPhone app. We were the first museum to have an Android app. Um, we have more Facebook and Twitter followers than most of the big museums. That's amazing. We host every three months a Bloggers Blast where we invited all the local and regional podcast bloggers and major uh, Twitter feeds to come to the Tunesium and learn about what we're doing. So we're firm believers in uh, the value and importance of social media. Um, we're only as good as our fans. Yeah. Uh, and we want to hear from them all the time. That's great. And you've also managed to uh, get some mainstream media attention. I've, I've, I, this afternoon, I was spending time reading some we articles. We have. We, again, this is amazing. I, I worked with the Children's Museum uh, for 20 years uh, before they kicked me out. And uh, 
I'm amazed by the amount of press we get. There's this huge multi-million dollar museum, the Children's Museum, and within a week of our opening, we were in the New York Times with a full half-page photo in the New York Times. And I got a call from their PR director. It's like, director just mad as heck saying, you know, why didn't you help us do any of this? I go, I don't even know how I did it. <laughs> you know, and we, we're in the New York Times. We've been in the Wall Street Journal um, and international, too. Yeah, it's, it's been amazing. It's obviously something that is on people's minds that, that, that they're deeply interested in. And it's, it's actually cool to see that community grow here in Edmonton as well. Because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that there could be similarities between Edmonton and Pittsburgh. We're both industry towns. Um, I don't know how, I mean, a lot of Edmontonians consider them, I would say, blue collar, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think there is a, there's a lot of similarities. Um, Pittsburgh is an industrial city that reinvented itself as an arts hub and technology city. Yeah. So there are a lot of gaming companies now in Pittsburgh, uh, as of course up here. Um, there's a lot of very creative arts going on as here. Um, great gallery walks, gallery crawls. So I think you'd see a lot of similarities. Um, and I think, uh, I, I think the artists uh, are similar in many respects too, just because they have similar upbringings. Yeah, that's probably true. Now, because we are an Edmonton-focused show, I do have to ask, what have you thought of your experience here so far, other than the temperature, of course, because that's the first thing everyone knows. I, I love it. Um, one of the things I have the great opportunity, I, I joke that I am the geek ambassador of Pittsburgh because I travel so much. Um, that's actually true. Um, Visit Pittsburgh, our Convention and Visitors Bureau, actually funds me to go to comic conventions. No way. They'll actually help pay for our booths. Um, those of you who were lucky enough to be here at this great uh, event, Pure Spec, you got free pickle pins from Heinz. Well, those were donated by uh, Visit Pittsburgh. Um, so I, I get to go to these great cities, and in exchange, I promote Pittsburgh, talk about what we are, and I steal the uh, great ideas of other cities. So that's what I'll do. I'm going to steal all your ideas and go back to Pittsburgh. So pony up, guys. All your good ideas. We well, need this, to give them to Joe. I, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I got to tell you, the one that I absolutely love um, is uh, Happy Harbor Comics has a uh, artist in residence program, yeah, which uh, I think is great. And I'm hoping that um, we can make it an international program. We're going to send a Pittsburgh artist up here, and we're going to bring one of your Edmonton artists down to Pittsburgh. That would be phenomenal. Suddenly, I wish I was an artist, so you could go and be in Pittsburgh for a while. But I would, I would still pretend it was Gotham. It is Gotham. <laughs> it is right. Pittsburgh is Gotham. Yeah. Chicago hates us now, but <laughs> Pittsburgh is Gotham. That's right. Which is great. Before that, we were just sort of the zombie capital of the world. That's right. Um, now we're actually Gotham City. So now Batman gets to fight zombies. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. We're actually uh, – well, no one from Pittsburgh is going to hear this yet. Um, oh, we're they actually, will, Joe. They will eventually. <laughs> yeah. They're we're amongst now. our tens of listeners. We've, we've worked um, with some of the other businesses in our alley. We're actually renaming the alley where they filmed Batman. We're going to name it Gotham Way. Cool. Nice. But we're not doing it uh, through the city. We're just tearing down all the signs one night. <laughs> And it was fun. And it happened, actually, everybody on the block. We have this really great, amazing block, the 900 block of Liberty Avenue in Pittsburgh. It's phenomenal. Um, and we had, had this block meeting. I'm like, we should rename the city. Let's find out about the paperwork. And they said, forget the paperwork. Let's just do it. And so there's this group of us that are going to sneak out one night and just change all the signs in the alleyway. 
and then uh, claim we don't know who did it. I think that's um, a great so idea. So hopefully the law enforcement of Pittsburgh is not listening. Well, let, let's not talk – when you get back home, don't talk about this until after that's happened. After it's and, done. And, and, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll just keep it quiet. Hopefully keep they'll – Keep it on the DL. They'll see it as, yeah. a, as a flight of It's fancy. a great marketing opportunity. Where I can't wait till we have tourists coming like – is your alleyway where they film Batman? They're like, yes, it's five dollars. Look out the back door. Um, <laughs> we need to build another so, gallery. We, talk about innovative marketing. We we do some creative stuff. We actually have our own beer. Uh, it's called Illustration Ale. Six local artists designed beer labels, and East End Brewing produces them. We're doing our, our second run for this year. But one of the things we did, they filmed over the summer Batman. Yeah, and. They had covered the entire block with this fake snow, I mean, all over the place. And they wouldn't let us clean it up because they're like, no, 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 leave it because we may have to do some reshoots tomorrow. So we had to leave it. And then they said, well, don't worry. We're going to come by and we'll clean it all up the next day. And we said, oh, don't worry. We've already got garbage bags filled with it and little plastic vials of Gotham City snow that we'll be selling on eBay next year. So <laughs> we're fine. We, we're no worries. That's a good entrepreneurial spirit. Well, when you're a nonprofit, you've got to be creative. That's right. It's been a while since Scott and I opened up the old unknown studio mailbag. But wouldn't you know it, we've received a few emails, some messages by Courier Pigeon, and a strange ransom note demanding a lock of Scott's mustache hair in the last little while. Now, I can't read every piece of mail we get, because you'd be hearing a lot about Nigerian princes and Viagra, and this really isn't that kind of show. But, I've picked a couple of the best messages we got recently, and uh, I thought I'd share them with you. Let me just uh, reach down into ye old sack here. The first message came by way of a note that someone placed in my coat pocket when I wasn't looking. I'm not kidding. This is this is totally serious. I'm not sure if this happened at work or out at an event, but when I came home a few days ago and pulled out all the junk out of my pockets, there it was. And all it says on the outside is dear owner. It's folded up. So here's the really freaky part. The message within actually references me by name. Here's what the note said. Adam, gray coat here. Can you lend me an ear? Oh, wait, I don't have a mouth, so I'll write you a note versus growing a throat to tell you my mood has gone south. I need you to know I've never loved all this snow, but for some reason people think that I do. How would you like it if you were the jacket, and when it's cold I got to wear you? Think about it, Adam. Uh, really weird, uh, but delightful and whimsical, and I've treated my coat to some warm times inside. Now, our next letter comes from the fine folks at Rickards Red, and wouldn't you know it, but the message was accompanied by a four-pack of Movember beer. Mm. Here, let me read this while I uh, sample some of the merchandise. Oh, that's stuff. The note says, hello, the unknown studio. With the cold weather nipping at our noses, Rickards invites Canadians to join in on feel on a feel-good trend, excuse me, that will help keep lips warm across the country. 
This November, helping the one in six Canadian men diagnosed with prostate cancer is as easy as adjusting your morning grooming routine. Movember is all about raising awareness, connecting with friends, and fundraising for a great cause, all while sporting a mo, of course. Or, in the case of the Mo sisters, it's all about encouraging and supporting Mo men on their great stash journey. As a proud sponsor of Movember, Rickards has created limited edition tall boy cans featuring stash-tastic styles. The Red Imperial, the White Walrus, the Blonde Handlebar, and the Dark Chevron. We wanted to provide you with a selection of the limited edition cans, alongside some November swag to get you in on the festivities. Hope you enjoy, and I am enjoying Rickards. Oh, that's stuff. Yeah. I think I'm, what am I drinking here? The Red Imperial, true Rickards Red. And these are tall boys that you can get in liquor stores all across Edmonton. In fact, I, uh, I purchased some before they even sent this to us. This is really good. I'm going to try a different one here. Red Imperial, and this is the the blonde. Mm. Oh, yeah. So before you get to tasting the beer, well, oh, shit, it's too late for that. We thought we'd share some details behind each stash that Rickards has chosen to showcase. So the Red Imperial is their red beer. Then there's Rickards White, which is the walrus. There's Rickards Dark, or the Chevron, and Rickards Blonde which is a handlebar mustache. Uh, Let me read you one of the descriptions. And this one's about the handlebar. A handlebar mustache tends to be quite bushy. It must be worn long enough to curl the ends upwards or the ends grown downwards towards the chin. The downward-turned handlebar was made popular in the late 19th century by Wild West figures like Wyatt Earp, but recognized in modern day for wrestler Hulk Hogan and baseball great Rolly Fingers. So there you have it. Rickards Red Beers. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Uh, go out there, folks, and keep supporting Movember to all my friends, including Ryan Jesperson, the Seth Glicks of the world, and all the Mo sisters out there. You're doing great work, and we look forward to seeing you this coming weekend, November 27th, at Mustaches and Microphones. So there you have it. Uh, the Unknown Studio Mailbag. Uh, nice to crack that open every now and then. I've got some beer to finish, so uh, so we'll let you listen to uh, the rest of the show. Are you looking for current, relevant, highly specialized digital media instruction? You need to seek out The Guru. Guru Digital Arts College offers intense six-month programs that simulate real-world projects. You'll work in small classes in a casual professional environment and meet industry pros who offer a mentor-style approach to learning. Some institutions make the same claim, but with Guru, you'll develop the confidence to get out and become a part of the digital media community. Come visit us anytime. Check out a class, talk with our instructors, and be part of the Guru experience. For more information, email info at gurudigitalarts.com or call 1-877-429-4878. The unbelievable mall to the west. The gorgeous oil refineries to the east. The breathtaking industrial wastescape of Niskyu to the south. And whatever it is that's to the north. In between all of this is Edmonton. It is a city. This logic can't be denied. Welcome to Edmonton, a city. 
A brand new segment for our friends at the Unknown Studio, where we'll be detailing the sophisticated love-hate relationship that people seem to have with the city. We want the segment to be a portrait of Edmonton, much like The Wire did for Baltimore, but in only 10 minutes per month. In doing this, we'll be talking about the frustration, blandness, awkward situations, ennui, because let's be honest, we have a significant hipster demographic here, and occasional awesomeness that comes with living in Alberta's capital city. But really, it's not that bad of a place, at least sometimes. There are interesting stories that occur in this city of nearly one million people. And we're going to go after those curious stories and quaint Edmontonia that's all around us, yet goes unacknowledged except for a brief muttering to yourself. In doing so, we will try to create a surprising, informative, and captivating take on what makes our city both average and aspiring. Hey John, what's Edmonton to you? Well, I guess, I don't know, I hadn't really thought about this prior to uh, thinking about this segment, but uh, to me, Edmonton is a city that's always aspiring to be better than it seems to be, or the people think it seems to be. Yeah, it's funny it has that characteristic. Yeah, and I mean, at least for me, uh, Edmonton had like a very important part in my uh, upbringing because my whole extended family's from around here. So I actually looked forward to coming to Edmonton through most of my childhood, as opposed to a lot of people. This was definitely my least favorite place to come to. From <laughs> I'm originally from Calgary, so it was definitely my least favorite. I never liked coming here, and we seem to only really come for the mall. Okay, so for our first segment, we wanted to get the opinions of a few local Edmontonians about what Edmonton means to them and what they love and despise about this fair city. And what better place than Wonder Bar, a local bar on White Ave that was holding a fundraiser this past weekend. So we decided to head down there, brave the cold, and talk to some young people about their relationship with Edmonton. What do the young people like? Because it's so isolated, people do things, and people like, there's like a certain, I don't know, like a responsibility like people will like it's not like oh you know maybe somebody's gonna book a show for my band it's like you're gonna book a show for your own band uh it's not lazy it's like people want to do what they're going to do and they will make it happen like something like the wonder bar yeah exactly you know there's no good bars we're gonna buy a bar we're gonna make it happen yeah and there's kind of of a pride about it and i I think that's something like when i came here i started a band with my brother yeah. And it's like, if you start a band in another city, it's going to take a while to get a show. Yeah. And it was like, we just contacted somebody and they were so happy, like, so, like, supportive. And it's like, if yeah. you are going to do something, people are going to support you in doing that. Yeah. And it's like, people want other people to do things. And it's like, people want people to be creative. Yeah. And I think that's what's so funny. Like speaking about the about the cold, and I know uh, I hate complaints about the cold. Yeah, yeah. Com- complaints about about the weather is, you know, my biggest problem with Edmonton is how people who you know have lived here for 20 plus years sort of you know have a ha- you know have a, have a constant hate on Edmonton and things that they you know. Uh, you know, either don't have control of or, you know, choose not to, you know, be part of or, or you know, try to improve. Yeah. So things like, 
you know, whether it's the art scene, music scene, yeah. you know, transportation, whatever it may be. If, if, you know, if you have a problem with it, you know, get involved. I, I, I don't know if I'd say I love Edmonton, but I certainly, like, I don't hate it either, and I've certainly, like, grown to appreciate a lot about it. Most people, the character of their city is everything they love about it. Edmontonians seem to be drawn together by everything they hate about Edmonton. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of what we're trying to document with this, you know? Yeah, I mean, everyone can get together and hate the airport and hate the hate, hate the international airport, too, for being so far away. Yeah. They can hate how cold it is, and they can hate how there's so few good live music venues, and yeah. how there's so much talent but no money to back it, yeah. or, like, no one listening. But in a sense, it's, it makes it more poignant, more special what we do have, which yeah. is all that talent that's got nowhere to go. Like, suffering together is obviously what makes Edmontonians feel like they're Edmontonians and yeah. makes them feel like they're better than the rest of the world because they're pussies, when really we're just stupid for not moving. <laughs> but something keeps us here, that's for sure. Something keeps us here. And so after we had talked to a few scenesters in Edmonton, we decided that we needed a more expert opinion from a local Edmonton dignitary. Our trusted friend and Edmonton aficionado, Simon Yakulik, went to speak with him. I spoke to Michael Jans about what Edmonton means to him. Jans is a trustee with the Edmonton Public School Board for an area that encompasses downtown, the university, Southgate, and Riverbend. He is also marketing director for the Edmonton Federation of Community Leagues. Each neighborhood essentially has their own autonomous nonprofit, and uh, I represent the umbrella organization. Uh, and the Federation helps provide uh, services, marketing, support, and citywide promotion for the idea that our neighborhoods are special, that they have a, a unique identity and history, and that Edmonton really is a collection of small villages in one big city. Uh, if you talk to many people from Edmonton who might have grown up in Edmonton or who have experience in their own local community, it's certainly true. Every neighborhood does have their own unique shops and space and, uh, and character. Jans reiterated that this seems to give the city a distinct feel. I think Edmonton has that small town feel that you don't get in uh, Calgary or Toronto or Vancouver. You know when you're in Garneau or Strathcona you know when you when you are in the Alberta Ave area. Uh, it might be due to the arts and culture and festivals that we have. It might be something more unique, but even as the neighborhoods turn over, you can really feel a different vibe in different areas, and that's, that's needed. It, it, it adds character. In practical terms, Jans believes that these different communities in Edmonton remain accessible to one another. And this is what he likes about the city. My uh, wife, Brittany, and I chose to live in a uh, an apartment complex that's right beside the LRT station. So we can be from bed to platform in about 10 minutes in the morning. So it helps to uh, get downtown. And, and uh, we love the fact that we have White Ave so close by, that we have bike trails nearby, that we can very quickly be in the River Valley. Because when I think about Edmonton, uh, Horlick Park immediately comes to mind. The idea that you can be right in the center of the bustling metropolis with a million people all around you and you can escape into the River Valley and in a quick 10 or 15 minute walk be completely secluded from everything. And I think there's something really special about that. You can, you can just disappear into yourself. And I feel like I'm 
Calvin in an episode of Calvin and Hobbes just sort of flooding out in the woods and you have no idea <laughs> and not a care in the world and that's special. Tell me when When you come back to Edmonton Promise me you call me when When you come back to Edmonton Thanks for joining us this uh, month for our inaugural Edmonton A City segment. Uh, we had a great time doing it, and we just wanted to thank uh, both Adam and Scott and Lisa at the Unknown Studio for giving us the opportunity to do this. And we'll be back next month with a special Christmas-themed segment. Would you like to talk about that more, Matt? No, just that it's going to be <laughs> very special. It's going to be something fun, and we're, all, we're, we're really excited to do it. Word is we'll be talking to a mall Santa. So thanks, John. I really had a really fun time, and thanks to Simon as well. And a very special thanks to our good friend Sam Brooks, executive producer of this fine podcast that we're creating. Thanks again, Sam. And thank you for tuning in. Back to you, Unknown Studio. Now, I want to take advantage of the fact that you are a comic historian as well. Yeah, well, yes. Sure. I want to, uh, so I have a six-part question for you. Okay. Let's keep it simple, right? It is, it's fairly simple. That's good. But I, I do want to know, what in your opinion are the best comic strip, comic book, and cartoon? And as a counterpoint to that, what in your opinion are the worst comic strip? comic book and cartoon in okay. your experience okay um i'm gonna start with comic strip because that's really a, a a strong area of expertise um uh i really love peanuts i think peanuts is a great comic strip i think it made the most of the medium mm-hmm. um he when comics were shrinking he adapted a style that would work and fit well um he tapped into the human experience um in the simplicity that Snoopy is who we all want to be and Charlie Brown is who we all are. Um, <laughs> and I think that was universal. Um, I also think, you know, uh, as I think you talk to any comics historian, they're going to say Crazy Cat is definitely in there. Pogo is in there. Pogo does not hold up as well um, today. Um, but And uh, I think Watterson uh, with Calvin and Hobbes was tremendous. And again, because they tapped into that universal experience, and use that space so well. Um, animation is, t- is tough. Um, my favorite animated film of all time is one that does not end up on nearly enough list, and that is Cats Don't Dance. I'm not um, fam- I don't think I'm familiar I with I don't that. think I'm familiar if with If you that haven't either. seen it, get it. It was um, torpedoed by the studio, the same way they torpedoed Iron Giant, that they released it at a really bad time and just really had a great product, a great cartoon, but didn't know who it was for. Um, Cats Don't Dance has Scott Bakula in it, um, Don Knotts. It's a great cast, and it's about animals in the 1940s being shunned by Hollywood, um, that they're not allowed to sing or dance anymore. Uh, But it's beautifully animated. Uh, Gene Kelly, who was from Pittsburgh, um, acted as a consultant 
on a lot of the uh, movement and dance in the movie. It's it's a great movie that not enough people have seen. And it's one of my favorites. How old is it? Um, 1990s, actually. Really? Yeah, it's it's not that old, but it's just wow. one of those. Just not on ones. anybody's radar. Because not on anybody's radar, and it doesn't. Yeah, you don't see it on Netflix or anything. So. Huh. Let's start a Netflix campaign. There's a lot of stuff you don't see on Netflix, to be fair. But it's a great cartoon. Definitely watch that. And then, um, you know, I'm a fan of a lot of the Disney stuff um, just because it's what I grew up with and loved. Um, But I think that's my favorite. My favorite TV cartoon, I mean, there's too many. I I think that – I I do think that Rocky and Bullwinkle um, is probably my favorite because it was brilliant in that it took all these great radio stars – um, and basically transported their show onto this irreverent, um, you know, medium of television. Yeah. I was a little surprised actually because I, I attended your your earlier panel, which yes. was the uh, the Saturday morning cartoon mm-hmm. panel, and I was a little surprised Rocky and Bullwinkle didn't appear. Well, because Rocky and Bullwinkle was prime time. Ah, there you um, go. It was not a Saturday morning. cartoon. It was not technically. It became a Saturday morning cartoon as much like the Flintstones did too. Yeah. Um, the Flintstones, uh, you know, they were a primetime cartoon. It's funny that, no, that you know, you talk to some people and they think F- Family Guy or The Simpsons, they don't, re- they don't consider cartoons to be, I guess, I don't know if this is the right word, but legitimate television. So why, why would a show like that be on primetime? They don't really know much about it. They think it's just a well, cartoon. They, they, they don't know their history either. I, I mean, That's right. The Flintstones... Uh, and uh, there's interesting things. Simpsons shares some stuff in common with the Flintstones and some stuff in common with um, uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Uh, Homer J. Simpson and Bartholomew uh, J. Simpson are a tribute to J. Ward, Rocket J. Squirrel, uh, and Bullwinkle J. Moose. Um, Homer Simpson's best friend is Barney Gumble. Uh, Fred Flintstone's best friend is Barney Rubble. I've actually um, never put that together. So they're, they're both sort of these homage. So that's one thing about Matt Groening. Matt Groening knew his history. Yeah. He really did. I mean, the Flintstones did commercials for Winston cigarettes. Yeah. So it was very <laughs> Kids adult. Kids weren't was, buying cigarettes at yeah. the time. Not even back then. No, it was the, it was the honeymooners, as, as everyone knows. It was the honeymooners. Yeah. So um, cartoons being for adults or cartoons being prime time isn't a new thing. It just kind of uh, went through a phase where cartoons kind of became the Saturday morning uh, associated with, with kids, that might have been because of the Saturday morning. Yeah, because... Before, before it kind of went back towards kind of prime time. Yeah, it, it definitely did just because um, it was cheap and they needed something to throw on Saturdays, um, which was a kid hour. So they had all these old Looney Tune cartoons laying around, all these old Mighty Mouse cartoons, packaged them up whether they're appropriate for kids or not, mm-hmm. and threw them in on Saturday morning. And then before Looney you know Tunes it, was barely appropriate for kids. Well, and the Flintstones <laughs> certainly was, uh, wasn't forward-thinking in terms of uh, you know, gender issues if you wanted to get really technical about it. I mean, it was a sexist show for, because it was from that era. Do kids get that out of the cartoon? Probably not. You know, they get... Uh, they get that Fred Flintstone just dropped a bowling ball on his head. Yeah. And now thinks that he's a famous race car driver. And then his toe is throbbing and it's this big. I love that. Yeah. I I mean, there's the rich tradition of cartoon violence. It's it's, um, so important. It started all the way. We watch when we have kids come in to the Toonsium, we show them Gertie the Dinosaur. And this cartoon is almost 100 years old, 1940, 100 years old. And every time Gertie picks up the Mastodon and throws it into the lake, the kids roar with laughter. Kids love violence. It's so universal and so wonderful. Um, <laughs> we do not let kids be violent enough. I know that sounds strange, 
But, you know, Fred Rogers um, always said, you know, what do you do with the mad that you feel? We need to give kids an outlet to express it. And I say, cartoons, that's great. Let Wiley Coyote drop an anvil on a roadrunner. No kid is going out, getting an anvil, and dropping it on somebody. Um, let them express their violence through, through fantasy. I think it's important that we allow them. Um, you don't want it pent up. And I think cartoons give that outlet for kids and adults too. So what, what are your thoughts on, uh, on, taking, on, on mashing up <clears throat> old cartoons sort of in the style of what some of the Adult Swim cartoons have done with, with Space Ghost and, and uh, Harvey Birdman has brought in, mm-hmm. you know, the Flintstone characters but sort of repurposed. Um, do you watch those? Do you find them interesting? I, I do. I think they're hilarious. Um, and I think it's part of the – there's really two ways to go with, with animation. Um, your audience remembers these. Your audience was nine. Your audience is now 39. They have kids of their own. So you can put the Smurfs back as a movie, put the Smurfs back on TV so they can share it with their children. Um, that's great. That works with certain properties. For others – you can actually say, hey, those kids have grown up now. Let's let them in on the joke about <laughs> Scooby and uh, their little munchie problem. <laughs> um, and that's the other direction. Uh, I think things like C-Lab you know, sort of say, you know, hey, this is kind of obvious now that we're grown up. Let's explore it a little bit. Um, and the Venture Brothers, the way they make fun of Johnny Quest. Yeah, I, like... I, think it's, uh, I think it's just we all grew up and now we're saying, you know, uh, that was funny for it's much funnier for a different reason now. Let's let's explore that, um, and let's do it together. We're we're all adults now. Let's let's, let's go back and look at your childhood and, and ruin it for you, uh, which is great. Ruin or make it better. <laughs> make it better as an adult, but it certainly uh, takes some childhood memories and makes them interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that my memory of Johnny Quest now is totally warped. Like if I tried to recall the show, I'd probably just picture Venture Brothers or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I think if you talk to a certain generation, you say, uh, boy, Space Ghost was a great show. They go, you mean the talk show? <laughs> yeah. The talk show guy? Are you getting enough oxygen? <laughs> the yeah, guy, it's... The guy who was really high on himself all the time? Yeah. That's... We, we sometimes do the show that way where we just ask the guest questions about us. <laughs> are, you know, are you getting enough oxygen? Do you think <laughs> I'm doing well? Uh, sitting here asking you questions. Zorak, play important. me to the desk. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that's so the other the big joke I find in a lot of those uh, those Adult Swim cartoons is the cell animation. They make so much fun of it. The re- recurring backgrounds and just the way that cartoons were made back then. Yeah. Oh well. And, and one of my favorite things. I, I, I'm a big fan of filmation, obviously with Lou Scheimer, but they took cells uh, backgrounds that they used for Star Trek in the 19, <laughs> early 1970s and used those same backgrounds for He-Man in the late 80s. What? So you want to talk about repurposing? If it was laying around, it was going to get reused at some point. Wasn't there, uh, wasn't there some Rocket Robin Hood stuff that was reused in the Spider-Man cartoon too, I heard? Yes. Oh, they, they reused stuff all the time. And Hanna-Barbera did it too. Um, which has become one of the things that's difficult. We'll come across a, a great background piece, and we'll go, oh, that's from Scooby-Doo. And this is, oh, someone will say, oh, no, that was from Super Friends. Like, well, it may have been both. <laughs> it probably was. It probably was. So no way to determine at this point. That's fantastic. So uh, we're getting to that point. He didn't uh, say what, the, what his least favorite was. That's I right. Didn't. Did, was okay. that deliberate? 
that was deliberate because uh, if you're I am, uncomfortable, I am a member of the National it. Cartoonist Society, um, so I know these people. Um, so I'm going to try and pick dead people. Um, <laughs> it's easier that way. He doesn't have to justify. So. <laughs> yeah. I don't. My least favorite comic strip. Um, you know that 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 is really tough because I know more of those guys than I do any other. Um, but but there are a lot. You know what? I, I'm just going to say it. Um, I'm sorry if they're listening, but uh, Mary Worth, it's time to retire. Um, you know, the, the soap operas have come and gone. Um, people aren't reading the comic strips every day, so the idea of serials do not work the way they used to. So um, I do think it's time for, uh, you know, uh, Rex Morgan and Mary Worth <laughs> to say, you know, this is it. Brenda Starr retired last year. Um, which was sad, but at the same time, that's a, a genre in the comic strip world that has way outlived uh, its lifespan. Um, animation that I really don't like, um, there's just too much of it. Uh, <laughs> I love cartoons, but in my generation, did we really need, you know, a Chuck Norris cartoon and a Mr. <laughs> T cartoon? Um, there's a lot of stuff we didn't need that I look back and I go, oh, wow, that was, that was really bad. Uh, it's fun to watch now. Uh, but it was really bad stuff. With hindsight and irony. Yes. <laughs> there, are, there are certain cartoons you watch, and we've I think we've talked about this on the show before, like Transformers, which was designed to sell toys. Yeah, and G.I. Joe and, and so many others. absolutely does not hold up at all. It is so obviously almost tacked on. Seems like the thought of a marketing company, really. Well, it really was. Yeah. I mean, they, you know. Hasbro was going to all these studios and saying, here's our product, come up with a story. I, I mean, literally, that's, uh, how, I mean, how He-Man, Mattel went to Filmation you said, have, we got a product, you got a story? You have cars that turn into robots and you want a story. Yes, mm. that's exactly mm. it. Um, they could be from space. I actually think that'd be a great assignment, you know, nowadays. <laughs> but I guess no one's really doing that anymore. Or yeah, not, no, as they, much, uh, not as they much. They still do. They still do. Uh, I mean, Yu-Gi-Oh!, Pokemon, Bakugan, those are all just off the top of my head. Well, they're all on things, but they, uh, they're also they're designed to sell a video game or a card game or all of the above. Oh, and, and every animated cartoon has to have the plush. You know, it's like, what's the Batmite? You know, what is that character that we can turn into a stuffed animal that is totally gratuitous, unnecessary to the plot? It's like, this will be a good stuffed animal. Actually, and I guess that's what's happening with Angry Birds right now. Like they're a game now, there are plushes, and I've heard rumor of a film or a television. They are doing an animated so. series. Um, so well, where's the story? Uh, yeah, you I don't know. know. It's birds they're birds. Pigs. They're really angry by crashing into stuff, and they hate pigs. It kind of writes itself. The pigs it are does kind of yeah. Now you think of it, it sort of <laughs> does work. Yeah, it's it's certainly no stranger than the stuff we grew up watching. Yeah, that is true. All perfectly good fodder for the stoner nowadays, I should say. All right, now officially. It is that time. It is For Adam's time. favorite part of the show. You mean the Fast 15? I sure do. So you've listened to the show, I'm sure, since, it, since we started it two years ago, Joe. Yes, absolutely. It's um, my favorite show on the interweb. Most gratified to hear that. <laughs> so what the Fast 15 is, is for every guest we have on, we ask them 15 questions. Okay. The first 13 are standard questions we ask of all our guests, but then tailored to you at the end, we give you two wild card questions. All right. So, 
and it's supposed to be fast. All right, so, so start the timer. <laughs> Here we go. Start the timer, the Fast 15, with Joe Wose. Number one, your favorite food? Uh, chicken Parmesan. Your favorite color? A red. Mac, PC, or Linux? Um, <laughs> it was PC, but I just bought a Mac. Yes. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Coffee or tea? Neither. Any hot beverage of any kind? Hot chocolate. There you go. Uh, favorite holiday? Uh, Halloween. Favorite sport? I'm from Pittsburgh. It's mandatory football. The Steelers, absolutely. <laughs> you have to. They excommunicate you. <laughs> Your favorite pastime? Uh, drawing. Your favorite music at this particular moment? Favorite music at this particular moment? Uh, William Shatner. Wow. Yeah, huh. sorry. No, no don't there's nothing to apologize it. about at all. Uh, your favorite movie right now? Favorite movie right now? Uh, uh, wow. That's a, I know, that's a tough one. That one that's, often stumps people. That one does because there's, there's, there's stuff out there, but <laughs> nothing that's my favorite right now. <laughs> um, I'm going to wait until they come out with the Hong Kong Fooey movie. All right. He's, he, that will be, he's preemptively naming that. Yeah, that's going to be movie. my favorite. That's bold. Uh, your favorite video game? Favorite video game? I'm old school. Uh, Super Mario. Right on. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? One superpower, the ability to bend time to my will. We had a couple extra hours in the day. That's, yeah, I mean. You, Especially at this convention. You got stuff to do. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, Star Wars or Star Trek? <sighs> it's okay. Don't worry about it. Just answer honestly. This is, this is really tough. Star Wars up until the last three. Fair that's enough. A, that's a frequent answer. You'd be surprised. Yeah. yeah. And now we're on to our two wild card questions. Number one, what do you think is – in your experience, one of the most difficult things to draw or that you just dislike having to draw? Um, th this is the answer. I'm going to give you an honest answer that, that no one is brave enough to make. And this is uh, probably male cartoonists only. Um, I find it very difficult and challenging to draw women. Yeah. I can never get it right. <laughs> probably because I'm a geek and don't have a lot of experience. <laughs> so... So I, I, but I do find that's very common. That if you look at cartoonists, their drawings of women, it's like just draw a guy and give it long hair and some added features. You know, it's uh, <laughs> they can't get a handle on it because they've never had a handle on it. So that's that. Yeah, and, women and tough our, to draw. Fair enough. And our last wild card question: uh, how, how? First of all, before I ask the question, how long are you staying in Edmonton? Uh, I have actually. I arrived here on. Um, Tuesday. So I, oh. I've been here for a full week. I leave Monday morning. Okay. So I was going to ask you uh, what's something you wanted to see but didn't get a chance. Is there anything? Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything. I, I, I got a chance to see a lot. And what, what um, was then? Let me change it up. Why do you have the Santa Maria in your mall? <laughs> I know Columbus got lost a lot. Um, but when was he in Edmonton? I, I and did he forget where he parked his boat <laughs> at, at the mall? It is a so for those who have never been to Edmonton, or more importantly, those who have never been to the mall, they have a life size creation of the Santa Maria, and they're very proud of it. But you also have there some sea lions, and I mean, I don't know what all there's. There's an amusement park. Well, I went on the roller coaster because I am a coaster enthusiast. So the mind bender. And did it bend your mind? Uh, a little bit. Okay. A little bit. So to answer your question. Uh, to ask my question. Well, oh, you, to you, my you question. asked about the Santa yes, Maria, go so ahead. I'm. Uh, your fast because we could. That's why a Santa Maria was it is built. There. Yeah. Um, Don't you wish it was the Enterprise? Of course. Yeah. See. Every single Enterprise that's ever been made, in fact. Um, so, 
you've you've seen a lot. What what has been the, what have you enjoyed seeing the most here while you've been here, other than pure speculation? Of other course. than pure speculation, of course. Um, what have I enjoyed seeing? Not the snow. Um, <laughs> we have snow too, just not this early. Um, I, I've really just more than anything else enjoyed visiting the comic book shops. Right on. Um, you have a really great community. Um, I was really impressed. Um, Happy Harbor, um, they have a new shop, and just they have a great kids section. They have a great adult section. Um, it's really thought out. Um, the selection was amazing because they had uh, one of the flaws of comic bookstores is they never have comic strips. Um, and they had a ton of that stuff, and they had stuff from magazines. And so uh, I've really enjoyed that and, and talking with the people who own these stores. Um, you have a great community here. Yeah, we're pretty fortunate, I think. Yeah. Um, so that's it for the Fast 15. That's almost it for the show. Uh, I just wanted to add, before I thank you, of course, um, that we did receive some Movember beer from Rickards Red. But as we wish to respect the rules of Grant McEwen uh, University here, we're not gonna, we didn't crack them open for the show. But they also sent us a Movember T-shirt. A Movember T-shirt. Which awesome. I, would, I would like to pass on to that you. That would be great. And, and the, the T-shirt In says, lieu of a mug. That's right. It says... Um, Raise your glass, support the stash. So there you go. And I do have a very youthful mustache. You absolutely do. And yes. actually, everyone here at this table has a mustache. Scott, deliberately growing his for November. I sure am. Well You're done. You're doing okay. Yeah. It's, it's coming in. If, the, if there's one thing I can do and do well, it's grow hair. <laughs> so. so here you are, Joe. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining yes. us and for it's letting fantastic. us record the show with you. It's been great. Almost sort of kind of live in front of some people yeah. who Thanks. stayed some late. Some people. I mean, this is a late. tremendous Thousands audience. And That's right. Yeah. They're very vocal. Thank you all. Here at the uh, Ewan McGregor University <laughs> Auditorium. No, that's not. <laughs> the Ewan McGregor. Yes, Ewan McGregor University. Uh, Mr. Uh, McGregor. D uh, Grant McEwen. Grant McEwen. Grant McEwen. <laughs> that's one, yeah. Though I think it would be Michael more fun McKean if it was. University. There you go. Uh, thank you so much for having me here. Thank you. You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, episode 58. Our guest, Joe Wos, pre-production by Adam Rosenhart, post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. The Unknown Studio is a proud member of the League of Extraordinary Media. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.